We've got a cracking guest for you on this week's show, a man with a golden eye for flavour and technique. His cooking earned him a score of 007 from the Good Food Guide to take his place amongst the restaurant elite in 2020, not too long after opening. Now this Nottingham-based chef is just looking for the chance to fry another day. Confused? Allow me to explain. This is Source Material. Yes, it's Source Material and it's Rob Jones promising you no more Bond-based puns for the rest of the podcast, but assuring you there's a reason for it, albeit a fairly tenuous one. We have a Bond with us, not James, but Alex, chef and owner at One Michelin Star, Al Camilla in Nottingham and a new entry in the Good Food Guide's top 50 restaurants this year. Alex, welcome along. Good evening, sir. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Obviously, a, a very difficult time, and I, I'm desperately searching for different ways of, of starting these podcasts with not talking about the situation that we're in. But for you, who's had such a, a sort of dramatic rise and, and such a successful start to your first restaurant that you own yourself, it must be weird to suddenly sort of grind to a bit of a halt, is it not? Yeah. I mean, the last, what are we now, two and a half years have just been, well, yeah, like I said, roller coaster. It's been madness and, and, and it's been literally non-stop, as most new starts are, and has gone in, feels like we've been there forever and we've been there for 10 minutes in the same breath. Um, and now, yeah, it's just completely, completely halted. We were building some, some real momentum. I just keep saying that we're on pause. The other part of it is, I would ask you if you're, if you're keeping busy, but I know you've got two, two young girls to, to keep you busy and also that you've been doing stuff like, like cooking meals for, for hospitals and places like that. So it's, it's been a case of, of trying to get a little bit of normality into a very strange situation. Mate, I don't have time to do anything. I keep looking at people on Instagram living their best life. I was like, oh yeah, well all this time off, I'm going to have loads. I'm going like, to do loads of stuff. And I haven't done any of it yet. <laughs> and you're, in, you're into marathons, aren't you? Have, you? have you have you done any running? Because I know a lot of people are sort of doing about 12 workouts a day. So are you, is, I is used that to, you've been able to pick up? Uh, I haven't, not, I used to do marathons a while ago. I haven't run in a while. I did my last one about a year and a half. Oh no, hang on. Can't be a year and a half, it was London. Two years ago? Yeah, two years ago. Yeah, I've done a few three milers just to get back into it, but... With the kids and stuff, it's they just take up so much time. But I'm gonna, some of it's excuses because obviously they do go to bed at night time, and I should get my ass into gear. Um, and I will. I mean, I, this part of me thinks we've got loads of time, and then the other part hopes that we haven't got loads of time, and that we'll be back to working eighty hours a week and being really tired soon. And I know that 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 both running and your wife played a big part in the, the concept of your restaurant. Now, if you had a quid for every time someone had said to you, explain the term plant-based restaurant, you'd probably be a rich man, wouldn't you? But I'm going to ask you to do it again anyway. Yeah, term plant-based, well, it's the best one we could come up with because we're not, we're not a vegetarian restaurant, but we are plant-focused. Fo- the majority of what we do is, is vegetable-based or vegetable-led. So we have an obsession with creating something that's special out of something that is not necessarily always considered special. Um, Not all veg are like that. Obviously, like if we get seps in the autumn, you know, they are highly regarded as special 
But when we do cabbage dishes or cauliflower dishes or, you know, broccoli dishes or whatever, those things that people kind of quite often associate with, with boiled veg, that's where our passion is. And we don't exclusively use vegetables. We're not, we're not a vegetarian, like I say, we're not a vegetarian restaurant, but plant-based was the, is the best version of that. We're never going to get it right, are we? Because there's always going to be somebody who thinks something else. So there's every now and again, we get people that think we are a vegetarian restaurant. But I don't really know how to describe a veg with two words, a restaurant that is vegetable heavy. The vegetable heavy sounds stupid. It sounds like a pumpkin. <laughs> or one of them, like, competition marrows. Like, so we, we, <laughs> yeah, we, that, that would be veg heavy, yeah. Yeah, so we just went with veg with plant-based. And now, in, in 2020, that is considered very cool. And you're, you've almost become sort of accidentally <laughs> cool. ahead of the curve. <laughs> uh, oh, I've got no doubt about that. <laughs> That's what my kids say. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we didn't do it with any intention at all to be cool or anything. And I think, if I'm honest, that's why it's worked. No, that's not why I think. I know that's why it's worked. Any restaurant or any part of any industry that does anything that is, I mean, I don't head of the curves, maybe a bit much, but anybody who's doing anything that's that's not necessarily different or, or is different or not mainstream, they're doing it for a, if you do it with passion and you do it because you are, um, genuinely interested and genuinely into it it was easy you know and it was just natural for us it was something that we that we i say i i say we because i'm very lucky that i've had my sous chef from day one and he's the same as me so although we've had lads come and go and we've now got a, a steady kitchen team i've had this solid you know he's my other life partner essentially and he really i might as well be in a another marriage with him <laughs> but he's he's uh the same way as i am so we, I say we, we've been very lucky in that we are both very much into this. So it was easy for us. It just became, it was a thing that we just did naturally and with passion and, and love. And I suppose you can compare it to things like the foraging movement. Do you know, like there's restaurants that are yeah. or were considered ahead of the curve with that. I mean, Norma's the one that obviously springs to mind is the obvious one. And they do it because they love it. They do it because it's a passion and because... They're obsessed with it. And I think that that it leads to a success. I'm not comparing our success to Noma whatsoever, but we've had a lot of success so far. And like you say, we've had, you know, an amazing first two and a half years. Um, And it comes from doing something that we love and not forcing it. And we weren't doing it because it felt like it had to be a trend. We weren't doing it because it was like, oh, what's the next thing that we should do? And, how do we get ahead of this? We did something that we loved. We did something that we were, we were genuinely interested in and I became obsessed with over the last, well, I always said five years, but we've been open for nearly three now. So it's probably more like eight years, seven years, you know, and we continue to get more and more interested in it with the more techniques that we learn and the more ability that we get to, to extract flavour and techniques to, to, to pair with or to use with veg, you know, and the more suppliers we get and the more relationships we grow, the more interesting things that we get our hands on and the more, you know, the more interesting uh, or the more wider variety that we have, the more time that we've had since we've started. Obviously, we opened with five chefs. We've now got 10. We now have time to do 
you know, talking about foraging, we now have time to do the things that we want to forage. We don't forage a huge amount, but now we have time to do stuff on mass, um, which gives us a bigger larder. And now we've got more chefs, we've got more time to create. So, yes, I think I agree we were ahead of a curve, but I think the reason it's been so good is because it was unintentional. It wasn't about getting ahead of a curve. Does that make sense? Uh, and just to, yeah, it does. It yeah. does. It does make sense. And just to go back to to the sort of concept, and, and I mentioned that that your wife was was heavily involved because she's a horticulturist, isn't she? She um, is. Yeah, she's amazing. Uh, and that you know we, we've already touched on it. And anyone who's who's been a chef will will know that you know it's not the most sociable of hours, and you can end up doing sixty, seventy, probably even more if you if you work right at the top end. But to to have a part of your love in terms of, of being a restaurateur that you can also share with your wife, who probably there are weeks where you don't see her too much, must be pretty special, is it? Yeah, it's lovely. My wife does the aesthetic side of the restaurant. So my wife's first love is is plants and flowers. Um, so she does all of our uh, internal and external. So we've got a, a 3,000 square foot roof terrace that's planted. Remember rightly when we put in over two and a half thousand plants upstairs so it's high maintenance um and i'm very lucky that i get to see her at work as well so she comes in twice a week to do the maintenance on the on the plants so we sit down on a thursday afternoon and we have a coffee she comes in and checks on the staff like mother hen uh, <laughs> and she comes in on a tuesday which up until august of last year we were open tuesday to saturday and we as of August, when we come across our summer holiday, we closed Tuesdays. So now we go in on a Tuesday on our own, which is nice, because we have the afternoon together with no like massive work pressures and no staff and stuff, and we can just sort of hang out together. Yeah, because there must have been sort of times from her perspective where you you were not seeing as much of her when you first were trying to get this off the ground and, and you're going into a building that you know, has been uninhabited for 150 years or however long it was, then there must have been nights where you're sort of going in, lying next to her in bed, getting up, and you might not even exchange any words during that point. Oh, I still do that now, four days a week. Like, <laughs> that's common practice. Yeah, that's normal. Like, that's, we, I, I get home. I work the same hours as the boys do. I've had two nights off since we opened. Wow. As in two services, not as in two nights in day. I, I have Sunday, Monday off. I'm like, don't people think I've had two days off in three years. I have my days off. The reason we closed Sunday, Monday was so that I guarantee myself two days with my family. Do you know, like, if we open seven days, then, then I open myself up to being there seven days. And I, I didn't want to do that. So originally we opened five to give us always two days off. Uh, and then obviously now we open four. So life's, life as a chef is... You know, it's hard, but we're, we're trying to make it easier. It doesn't need to be like the way it used to be. You know, it's kind of gone of those days now. Um, but it's been amazing. The lads get three days off. I work Tuesdays, like I say, me and Anna go in on a Tuesday and we do a bit of work. I do some paperwork to admin that means I now don't have to worry about stuff in the week because usually I would try and find time in the week to kind of get out of the kitchen for an hour. Or I'd do it at midnight. You know, I'd... I'm I'm more than happy to ignore it all because I hate it and it's boring and I'll do all the paperwork <laughs> at 1am if I have to 
I want to come back to you being a, being a restaurateur and an owner a, a little bit later on, but but back to the the, the more fun bit, the food, um, and, and we sort of touched on on techniques and and it being that that plant based thing, and that it must be a something that's pretty easy to get wrong if you don't do it right. But you know, you look at the menu and, and even the way things are ordered, celeriac becomes before the muscle, mushroom before comes before the aged beef in terms of how it's written on your menu. It must be so delicate, the, the stuff that you're, the techniques you're using, that the aged beef doesn't override the mushroom or the muscle doesn't override the celeriac on, the, on those sorts of dishes. The protein is used as a seasoning. And by seasoning, I mean that... So I suppose the definition of a seasoning is something that en- en- enhances or elevates a flavour. People say season with salt and pepper. That's that's not seasoning. You're seasoning with salt. You're adding a flavour with pepper. Pepper does not bring out flavour. Pepper adds another flavour. If you want pepper on something, put pepper on it. But let's not confuse the fact that when we say season with, what we're doing is seasoning with salt. So we use those things in the loose term of the word that seasoning, those those proteins enhance the flavour of the vegetable. So in that, say that mushroom dish is a perfect example. There's no actual meat in it at all. We just render the fat. So the the rendered fat from the and the a and the trim. So when we age, we dry age the sirloins. The obviously when you dry age, you get this layer on the outside that dries out and is the mouldy bit. And it's that mouldy dry bit. It's the flavour from that that permeates into the middle of the meat that gives the meat its aged cheesy flavor now obviously that outside bit is to most is useless because it's dry and inedible i mean inedible in its texture there's nothing wrong with it but it's just you wouldn't eat it so we use that outside meat or the outside trim we we render that with some fat and then we make an emulsion with that so there's no meat in that dish at all that's the only thing there is in there it's just the infused Essentially, it's the essence of the aged beef, isn't it? Without sounding really wanky, but it's that is that's the you know that bit is the essence of what is creating all of that flavour. Is the bit that people cut off and bin, you know. And as a restaurant that we continue to strive for zero waste or minimal waste, there's two things there: that a you're binning something that is amazing in flavour, and b you're binning something that doesn't need binning. There's a waste issue and there's a flavour issue if you just chop off and bin. So we look at things differently. So we look at that and we think, well, fuck, that tastes incredible. How do we extract that flavour without eating it? Because obviously if you eat it, it is dry and horrible because it's it's been in contact with the air for 60, 70, 80 days, depending on how long we're aging our sirloin for. In that dish... That is the only that is the only meat. If meat, I mean, I'm doing air quotes there above the Golden Gate Bridge. Not, <laughs> we'll you know. we'll insert them somewhere yeah. in the podcast. But do you know what I mean? Like that's quotes. that's the only you know. And the same with the with the with the celeriac. The the predominant part of that dish is is the celeriac. We just use the 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 salty or the saline, you know, ocean type vibe. Mm as a seasoning to elevate that celeria. And there's been classically, there's loads of dishes that are vegetarian, you know, and they're not even, we've had vegan dishes, not intentionally. We've done the dishes that are vegan without even, you know, like, again, it's like, 
for us, it's never about trying to shoehorn in a concept. Sometimes we'll just write dishes because they sound fucking amazing, and we'll do them up and be like, oh, that's a vegan dish, that. You know, because we have a vegan menu as well, and we think, okay, right, what's on the, what are we doing for vegan? Because the vegan menu and the vegetarian menu are thought out just as much as the normal menu. So we have one menu of 10 courses, and then we have a vegan version and a veggie version. Now, the, the veggie version is not just the normal one with the meat taken off. Doesn't work like that. That's lazy and sloppy. They thought, oh, but exactly the same. But sometimes we'll write the vegan menu and realise that there's like three dishes off the normal menu that'll just go straight on the vegan menu. Because unintentionally we've created dishes that are vegan, but they're amazing. Like for us, it's just about looking at what's in season. But basically, our suppliers write our menus for us. My suppliers tell me what we're gonna use because I don't know what they've got. I don't know what's in. I don't know. You know, they know. They're dealing with it. They're on the. They're. I was going to use a, a bit of a buzzword. They're on the front line, not in the way that other people are. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what I mean they're on? They're the ones that are in the markets. They're the ones working with the farmers. They're the ones that will say, "Look, you need to be using pineapple rib tomatoes now because they're amazing," or you need to be using, whatever. Like there's loads of stuff that we know. Do you know what I mean? Don't get me wrong. We're not stupid. I don't wait for my suppliers to tell me what to do. But like, I know when white asparagus is coming in a season. But they'll tell me when to use the white asparagus because they're the ones that that's seeing it every day. And they'll say, it's not very good at the moment. It's not very good yet. It's not very good yet. Right, now you're using white asparagus. Or now you're going to use, you know, like even when the British asparagus comes in, we all get dead excited. And sometimes there'll be a bit of a first week where it's not very good. My suppliers will tell me to wait. So, you know, we work with them and they they write our menus in that sense. They tell us what's good, when's good and what to use. And we just we just do our bit in order to elevate that ingredient. And sometimes that needs meat, sometimes it doesn't. Not all of the dishes work like that. We always have a meat main course. Always have, always will. Let's say you have 10 course. Course number seven is our main course on the 10. It will always be a meat course. Now, we obviously on the veggie menu, it's not. But on the main normal 10-course menu, there will always be a meat dish because I love the build-up to that. Like It's almost like the crescendo of like, here's a... It is, yeah. It's perfect. always the highlight, or it should be the highlight. Well, it's not even... No, I, no, I, I mean, I, I, no, I would disagree with that. I think there's, there's, there's definitely dishes on a menu that I would consider as highlights over the main course. But I like that elevation up to something that's quite satisfying about a bit of meat. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I love meat as much as the next person, but we source phenomenal meat and we don't use loads of it and we treat it with respect and we work up to this, you know, like if you were writing a, you know, a piece of music, you get to a crescendo, don't you? And the, our crescendo is that, that one meat focused dish. And I like that. I also like, you know, I'm a big fan. I drink a lot of wine. I love that kind of, again, that, that uh, ceremony of, you know, the big red wine glass, a glass of red, you know, main, something that just feels like a main course. It's a progression, isn't it? It's it's a it's a, yeah. a build up to that hit. You know, big plate, main course, glass of wine. I've been to restaurants before, like multi course restaurant. You know, multi course tasting many restaurants and had amazing meals, but felt a little bit short changed or left a bit lost because I didn't know where the the high point was. 
I don't know. I don't know. The question wasn't now. I've just talked for loads of shit. <laughs> you, you've you've more than answered it. I think you've yeah. more than answered it. This is this this might be a little bit of an easier one then. What as we sort of finish off on on talking just about veg. And this is this is probably a sentence I never thought I'd say. Alex Bond, are you ready for the Veg World Cup? Yeah. What is it? Good man. <laughs> I, was, I was hoping that might be your answer. Well, we're gonna we're gonna see if we get to to an overall winner. I've ta- I've taken potatoes out of the mix just because I think they're probably in a slightly different bracket. But we've got eight quarterfinalists. Well, and we want to get you to see if we can get get to an ultimate winner. So for quarterfinal number one, it's carrot against tender stem. What are you saying? Tender stem. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Any reasons why? Uh, not a massive carrot's probably one of the only veg that I just find quite disappointing. I haven't yet. I'm still to be convinced of a great carrot dish or supplier or like Can I just I we struggle. One? Go on. There was a there was an amazing heritage carrot dish on at Marcus Waring's restaurant and. Um, Still remember it now, and it was just goes back to what you're saying about you know meals having various high points, and and when we saw the menu, his tasting menu before we went, thought well that doesn't sound massively interesting, and then got there and it was absolutely brilliant and a bit of a surprise as to how good it was, but that's that is my two penneth and and not well, I know, to um, as much as yours. Matt Birchall does one at Moore Hall, but I haven't managed to go yet. It's obviously work commitments and stuff. I think if. If I go um, and I'm and I don't and we don't like marks, then I'll definitely give up on carrots. Okay. But I think if anybody can com- if anybody can convince me of carrots, it'd be Mark Birchall. I mean, okay. this looks amazing. Right. Tender stem, tender stems, yeah, all day for me. Will it be up against aubergine or will it be up against celeriac? Oh, aubergine. Wow. Okay. I know. Celeriac I know. People don't like favorite. them. I love them both, but. Um, I have a real affinity with aubergine and I've convinced many, many people who tell me they hate them um, otherwise. Yeah, aubergine's one of them great veg that I love convincing people with. It's up there with, for me, it's up there with like cauliflower and cabbage. Do you know, like things that your mum cooked that she just like... Just, Boiled into submission. Yeah, yeah. Aubergine's one of them that like people are like they just think of like moussaka or like really shit ratatouilles. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And it's like, but it's really not. It's a it's a infinitely more complex and versatile vegetable. All right, quarterfinal number three, big local derby here. It's artichoke against Jerusalem artichoke. Which one are you going for? Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah, Good. I'm e- glad you said that. Easy. I think that's. Way better. Yeah. And the, the final one then, cauliflower against beetroot. Cauliflower. Cauliflower. All right. Yeah, yeah. So let's get let's 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 rattle through this into the semi-finals. Yeah. Tender stem against aubergine. Oh, uh, I'm sticking with aubergine. Sticking with aubergine. Yeah, I don't want Jerusalem that. against yeah. cauliflower. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, right? So the big finale we've got in this amazing World Cup of veg, and I, I think this not many people would have put their money on this at the start of the tournament. It's aubergine against Jerusalem artichoke. <laughs> who will who will win, Alex? Bob? Uh Jerusalem. Whoa! Yeah. Uh, just because it, that is one even more uh, versatile than a, a, a than an aubergine. 
Because you, right. Right, we do just, des- be- we just do before- desserts with Jerusalem's as well. Yeah, I've had a Jerusalem artichoke ice cream before, and that was very yeah. good. Do you want to give an honourable mention to anyone we've not picked up in this in this little eight ball before we move on? Uh, yeah, hispy cabbage. The hispy's one of the first dishes we ever did was a, a hispy dish, uh, and it still gets people requests from two and a half years ago. When's a hispy dish coming back? And I say I don't do dishes. We try not to bring things back because we like to try and progress. Uh, but I, I do love a hispy. I love the chard. I love a, like a chard buttered hispy. Oh, delicious. There we go. Jerusalem wins it. Honourable mention to the history. Yeah. You're listening to Source Material. Available from all major podcast providers. To get in touch, use the hashtag Source Material on social media. Let's talk inspirations and, and role models and people who've been a big help on your career. You can, you can obviously disagree with this. Would it be fair to say... It could be as simplistic saying you, you probably wouldn't be where you are today with, without meeting Sat Baines when you went for dinner there the once. Um, to an extent, yes. That is a true statement, yeah. Um, I've worked for n- numerous amazing chefs who have taught me a plethora of both good and bad things. And I take bad things as good things because that's how we learn and we learn how not to do things is as important as learning how to do things. Um, the biggest thing that Sat taught me, though, was um, a relentless ability to question stuff. Sat taught me to never to never stop, to never rest on our laurels, and to never to never think that we are you know the best, and to always question what we do. And it's those that that don't get complacent and that question how what they've done can be better. Um, and he taught us, or sat had, never taught us, he didn't teach it, he just did it and if you were clever enough then you'd take it on board. Sat had an insatiable appetite for, for that, for questioning stuff, for, for challenging himself and for questioning how we improve or how the restaurant improves or how the business improves or how, you know, we as chefs improve, um, and it's that mentality that yes is the the answer to that question. For that, yes, that mentality has got me where I am. I still hear Sat's voice now. Do you know, like when I do stuff, I still hear this, like, do you know, chief, what are you doing? And 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 it's that in it. It's that kind of and Sat had a childlike, childlike inquisitiveness to him. You know, for a man who's well, he was in his forties then. Um, but for you know, for that like childlike inquisitiveness about food for man to be cooking for that long, it's infectious. <clears throat> you know, it's 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 that that you can't teach. The people that have succeeded from that restaurant are the ones that that took that that obsession and that inquisitiveness and that kind of that mentality. And for me, it's that's the one thing that I will never forget from that restaurant. You know, and if I want my restaurant to succeed and I open a restaurant in the same city as my previous mentor, who's a two-star chef and, you know, and he said nationally, but world-renowned, then I have to do something that's amazing. So for me, it was, it was, it was great because it gave us a benchmark to reach for. It gave us a, you know, a yardstick. 
I didn't have a choice. It was either we'd be a second fiddle to Sat, and it's like, oh, this kid, kid, <laughs> I need to be a kid. I'm not a kid anymore. Uh, you know, this kid from Sat has opened a restaurant and it's shit, or we give Sat a run for his money. You know, not intentionally, just that's the way we are, and that's the only way we know how to do it. That's that's Sat's. That's what Sat taught us. Sat taught us and those that have succeeded that that's how we do it. We go hard and we we go in, you know, aggressive and with passion and fire. And that's the only way that you'll make anything of yourself. And and you, you, you said, you used the phrase, we sort of set out, you know, obviously it's not the only thing. And it's, I'm sure it's way down the list of priorities, but you, you set out to give him a run for his money. And would you say... The, the way you've you've done, you've got the star already. You're in, you're into the top fifty in the in the good food guy. Have you overachieved in in the time frame that you've had so far? Uh, no. No, we I, well, yeah, I suppose because I didn't set out for anything. I didn't set out to give him a run for his money. I just it was the only it was the only way we, the, the the only way we were ever going to do anything to to the standard that he taught us was always going to give him a run for his money, wasn't it? Because that's what he taught us to do. He taught us to work to this standard. So we do that. Um, as far as overachieving, yeah, because I set out for now. I always said that I wasn't bothered about a star. I wanted to cook food that I wanted to cook. I wanted a restaurant that was busy. I wanted to pay my staff and I wanted to go to work and enjoy it. And I did all of those things. When I got the star, I realised that was bullshit. And that all those things are true, but I definitely did want a star. And I think it was probably, like most, a defence mechanism. You know, you just you just you protect yourself, don't you? You know, I'd say, well if that's if I don't want a, if I don't want a star, then don't if I don't get a star. Obviously we then got a star and I was like, Oh yeah, I don't <laughs> know what it is. But when we started, people started taking us seriously because I think when we opened, I didn't even take us... Like, I didn't even open with a sommelier. Like, we... we After our first week of soft opening, I didn't think people would have wine pairing. I, I thought people would just have bottles. So we just give, like, the front of house some training on the wine menu. And then, like, 75% of people had wine pairing. And I had no sommelier. There's loads of stuff that I didn't... I didn't think people would take us as seriously as they have. I don't know why. Maybe I was just... Mm, I don't know, underselling myself, possibly. Uh, and then when people started talking about it, I then set goals for this year. Uh, just most, again, again, just sort of as a joke, but I said I wanted 7 out of 10 in a good food guide, a star and four rosettes. And we got 7 out of 10 in September, a star in October and a four for a You can retire then. <laughs> no, that's just the start. Now I want two. Now we want two star and five rosettes, don't we? Like when we got the star, I had an argument with somebody, and I well, they had an argument with me. I'd I tried to argue with people. I just kind of listen because um, I'd said it was easy, and I think that I upset that person. Um, and I didn't mean it was easy in the fact that, like, well, I suppose I did. Like I worked really hard. We all worked really hard. My entire team. I've got the best team in the world. I mean, everyone says that, don't they? But I love my lot, like like, like any head chef or owner does. And we bust our balls and we work so hard and we worked hard to get it, but it wasn't hard to get. We do what we love. 
We do what we love and we do it to a standard that is the only standard that we know. So therefore we didn't try for it. We just went to work every day and cooked the food that we love cooking and maintained the only level of standard that we know how to maintain. With or without, if Michelin didn't exist and it wasn't even a thing, we would maintain that standard day in, day out. It had nothing to do with Michelin as to why we did it. So in that sense, what I meant by that was, it was easy. Like, we just went to work. It wasn't an arrogant thing. It was just a, well, that was just what we do. So now I want, obviously now I'm like, well, I want two now. Now obviously I haven't got a fucking clue how to get two and and that'll never happen. (laughs) You know, we can reach for the stars. Absolutely. And that that was my, my final question on this section, really. And it's one of the things that fascinates me so much about about this industry and fine dining in that, you know, I love sport and, and you, you, you see athletes and you speak to athletes and their one goal is they want to get an Olympic gold medal, for example, and they do it and that's it. And then no one's ever going to take that away from them. But with, with this way of judging people, you start and go. And so there must be that, that, that balancing act between do you try and sort of just keep hold of that and some people will just be happy getting one a year forever or do you do what you want to do, I guess, and, and go to two and go to five rosettes and, and keep going until there's a limit? With or without Michelin, this year we will push harder than we pushed last year and that has nothing to do with Michelin. That's just who we are because we've done what we did last year and the year before and last year was better than the year before. This year will be better than last year because that's just our natural like personalities isn't it that's how we that's how we operate we want to be better than we were yesterday you know again if none of the guides existed we would still push to be better as chefs and as people for our customers to create a better dining experience for them it just so happens that Michelin and that exist I don't know the blueprint for Michelin at all I know that one is easier to fathom because there's a cook, there's a standard of cooking that they want you to show and that if you maintain consistently that standard of cooking that you'll get a star. That we know. We, we understand that bit. That's, that's kind of, that's a given. But what defines two is a very different question. Like in the guidebook, it just says it's worth a detour. What does that mean? So that just means we have to be better than we were last year consistently. And I don't, like, how do I don't know how to do that. All I know is to do is push. And if, if it never comes, it never comes. Like, I, you know, I, I never set out for one. Well, obviously, I think I kind of did. But never really set out for one. If, if I get one and four, then amazing. We, we will... We Keep will pushing. Continue to That's push. That's what on. I like to hear. We got, yeah. We've got time for just one more little section just before we go. The Burning Issues. We are going to just move away from, from your own place. It's, it's some foodie questions that we're asking all of our chefs just to, uh, just to finish on a, on a sort of lighter note. So a little quick fire round to finish with uh, just before you let you escape off into the night. Alex Bond's ultimate three-course meal would be? Fried round ginger starter from Abac, Barcelona. Um, Wagyu short rib from uh, Anasia, Gareth Ward. And dessert. Or loquat puffed amaranth from Clove Club. Isaac McHale. Beautiful. That is that's a nice decadent three course of that. I I'm a big fan of that selection. Yeah. Right then, dreams you your yeah. dream chef's table. 
four places at your dream chef's table. They can be alive or dead. Only one chef allowed. That's the only rule. But any, any than that, anything goes. Uh, Johnny Cash. One chef. Don't have to, but you can if you want. Uh, Tony Parkin. From the Tudor Room, because he's a boy. <laughs> Johnny Cash, Tony Parkin. Uh, Kate Tempest and let's have a dead one <laughs> um, somebody like I'll pick a really cool somebody who's like oh Charles Manson that's an eclectic miss we've got Tempest Manson Parkin Cash at the uh, at the Dream Chef's table yeah um, that's a that mad is, chat, that would be that would be quite an <laughs> evening I would suspect um, kitchen nightmares, worst moment in the kitchen, any dishes that you look back on and think, not sure I should have tried that, didn't come out anywhere near what you were expecting to? Strawberry couscous. Wow, that's rogue. For a dessert. Okay. And just yeah. didn't work. Didn't right. work. No, terrible idea. And the final one, I like this one. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't do, do strawberry couscous. That's, that's <laughs> our lesson for the day. And the final no. question, talk, talking of lessons, I, I, I like this one. It's the one piece of advice you'd give to home cooks out there, and it, it can be really simple. And I think some of the things that you, when you go into a kitchen and you and you learn initially as a chef, it's the smallest things that make the biggest difference in in your cookery. So, what what would you go for as as a tip? I've got two because they're, they're the two that I've that I always try to remember. One is mise en place. So obviously, that's to us that's completely normal. Um, but if you're making something, have everything ready first. Do all of the chopping. And prepare everything in advance, ready to cook. Um, and secondly, blanching and refreshing. And just to explain that, just to, for anyone like, who doesn't know what that is. Stress. Oh, so big pot. So a big pot of water, seasoned. Wants to taste. You want to taste the salt. Wants to taste a bit like the sea. Um, and then anything that you're doing, cook it first. If you're doing a Sunday lunch, Sunday lunch is a perfect example of this. Get it all blanched. Lunch and then to cook it three quarters and then drop it straight into ice water. Once it's cold, drain it off the water or take it out of the water and drain it off and then it's ready. Don't do what your mum does, stick it all in the steamer <laughs> tier thing, that tiered steamer and put it all in at the same time. Like, blunt refresh, it's amazing. And then when you're ready, you just got to pop it back into hot water and everything cooks nicely and you're not trying to time everything. Because that's where people get lost, is they try and do everything whilst they're doing it at the same time. So if you just do all of the mise en place first and prep all of everything, and people get unstuck with timings, especially when you've only got one oven, it's hard cooking at home, especially something like a Sunday roast. You've got one oven, it like you know we're lucky at restaurants to have loads of ovens. So I would say. Mise en place, preparation, and blood's refresh. And there endeth the lesson. Listen, it's been absolutely great to speak to you. I'm going to let you and a Jerusalem artichoke dance off into the night together. The Veg World Cup winner, lest we forget. <laughs> and I say this genuinely, I can't wait to come to Alcamilla when we're all allowed out of our cages again. Top man, great to speak to you. Another episode of Sourceman Serial on the way next week. Bye-bye.